Hello and uh, good day, everybody. Uh, welcome to your Ruby live event. My name is Eric Weinkoop, and I'm the director of culinary instruction uh, here at Ruby, and also one of the chef instructors uh, in the courses um, among our team of uh, about a half a dozen or so instructors here. And uh, today I want to welcome you uh, specifically to my office hours, and this is your chance to ask questions that pertain to food and cooking, and I'll do my best to answer those. Uh, we have a nice uh, selection of questions today, and um, so without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and jump in. And the first one is from Joyce, uh, who says, uh, what type of plant-based dishes freeze well? Thank you. Um, well, you know, I was just reminded uh, a few short minutes ago that perhaps the best category of plant-based food that freezes well would be popsicles, but um, that's probably not exactly what you're wondering, Joyce. Um, so uh, regarding other sort of savory preparations that you might see on the dinner table, um, let me uh, begin by talking about freezing you know, and thawing, that cycle. Uh, more generally, regardless of, of what the food item is. Um, you know, keep in mind that most things freeze pretty well. And uh, generally, if an item is, um, on one hand, higher in moisture content, i.e. watery, like a soup, uh, it will freeze pretty well and come out the other end, meaning after it's thawed, uh, you know, fairly stable. Uh, these are water-based products I'm thinking of at this point. And then uh, at the other um, uh, side of that, that uh, spectrum would be very dry items, um, which can uh, go through that freeze-thaw cycle and come out um, fairly uh, nicely, but with um, a little bit softer texture, okay? And so uh, this is where... Um, you know, freezing affects texture, generally speaking. Um, so regardless of what the food item is, okay, again, most things freeze pretty well, but do expect some changes, okay? Um, I'm going to preface my next uh, comments or thoughts by saying that when you buy frozen foods at the store, okay, whether it's a Hungry Man TV dinner or whether it's um, blueberries, um, from the frozen aisle, those things go through a flash freeze cycle where they are frozen in a matter of seconds in a very, very cold uh, environment. And uh, in the case of uh, fruits and, and vegetables, uh, they are frozen individually. In other words, they're, they're laid out on a, on a conveyor belt that'll run through this freezing equipment. And, and we call that um, individually quick frozen product or IQF product. Um, now at home, most of us uh, don't have access to this ultra cold, ultra fast freezing equipment. Um, we've got our, our typical household freezers, which take a little bit longer. And uh, so what happens is water expands, it disrupts the, uh, uh, the, the cell membranes, and, and uh, in other words, it, it tears them. Uh, and therefore, 
when things thaw, the texture gets a little slack, a little bit soft. And so that's the, the most um, common result of freezing a lot of food items, okay? Now, with that in mind, you know, understand that um, once things are thawed, uh, if you are using them in a moist environment, like making a soup or a stew or a, a casserole, then all is well. Um, you, you're, you're probably going to notice very little um, by the time the food hits the table. Okay. Um, but if you uh, have in mind that you want to saute or otherwise apply a dry heat cooking method uh, to these items, then you may notice um, less control over the texture. Okay, so in other words, the texture may be softer uh, than you had in mind, softer than you desire, and there's really no way to recover. Okay, that's just the nature of pushing food through the freeze-thaw cycle. Okay, um, now the uh, you know other thing to keep in mind is that there are some items like uh, um, you know let's say sauces uh, that have some thick base to it. Uh, whether it's um, heavy cream uh, or half and half, or it could be um, a, a nut puree. Um, these things can separate uh, upon thawing, uh, in which case usually they can be reincorporated enough um, to, uh, to, to get through the cooking process at hand at that point. Okay, and so, and this is actually going to be true of, of other sauces as well, like a tomato sauce or, or some of the puree that you might have. Um, it is um, very possible that uh, some separation of the water component from the solids may occur. And again, usually reincorporation, you know, either uh, with a spoon or with a whisk will uh, bring those two components together. Uh, in, in a more stable puree form uh, to get us through uh, the cooking process, okay? And uh, you know, beyond that, Joyce, it's going to take some, uh, some practice uh, on your part to freeze the things that you want to freeze, that you, that you think you might want to store in the freezer, okay? And just see how it turns out, all right, if it's going to be to your satisfaction. Um, you know, keep in mind also that when we put things in the freezer, uh, the best practice is to label and date items. Um, I, I must say that uh, on occasion, um, I, I will still just uh, hastily put something in the freezer without a label thinking, of course, I will recognize this, you know, two or three months from now. Um, and I don't. And uh, so things get um, kind of looked over or maybe um, covered up by other things. And as time passes, I'm just sometimes guessing uh, what these things are as I finally pull it out of the freezer into the fridge to thaw over the, over the next day or two or three, whatever is necessary, uh, and then um, try to figure out what it is and decide uh, what to make at that point. But anyway, um, best practice, label and date your food items. And uh, anything in the freezer uh, will certainly extend the shelf life, but understand that quality deterioration also begins pretty quickly. So, uh, you know, things have a shelf life in the freezer. 
And uh, it's not that the item is going to spoil per se uh, in the freezer, but the uh, the eating quality will decline. And uh, so, you know, for example, uh, at the extreme, you know, we'll experience freezer burn, which is uh, a drying of the surface. Uh, fundamentally, um, one of the things that happens in a freezer and the refrigerator as well uh, is that moisture is extracted. And uh, so things will tend to dry on the surface. So whether it's uh, a vegetable uh, item or a meat um, you can get what's what we call freezer burn, which is drying. And, and there's no reversing that effect. Uh, you can uh, trim it off or you can just uh, cut it smaller and, and put it in a stew and, and hope uh, you don't notice it too much. But um, uh, try to, in other words, try to use your frozen products, um, you know, within, say, three or four months. Um, will they last longer? Sure, they will. But the quality will be declining along the way. Okay, and so set your own standard and then go forth with your freezer program. Thank you. All right. Hello, Sue. Um, Sue says, I really like the vegetable stock from class. Is there any way to get the same flavor in the instant pot? Also, are there any instant pot classes that would be coming up through FOK courses? Um, so when we talk about the instant pot, you know, we're talking about generally a uh, pressure cooker. In this case, it's an, elect it's an electric and electronic pressure cooker, um, but it could well be, um, you know, the, the old school version that sits directly on the fire, okay? And uh, the, the quick answer is yes, you can make stock, you can do, you know, so many of these things that, that call for simmering as the primary uh, cooking method uh, in a pressure cooker. Um, will the results be exactly the same? Maybe not exactly the same, um, but they're probably going to be pretty darn close, and you may not even notice the difference. Okay, uh, you know one thing that happens uh, in a pressure cooker is um, that evaporation um, doesn't occur quite as quickly. Okay, as when you have a, a pot on the stove and a, a and, and no lid or a loose fitting lid. Okay, so keep that in mind, um, but. You know, one way to work around that is once something like stock uh, or otherwise something that's very high in water content, like um, a soup or, or a stew, let's say, uh, is that you can uh, take the lid off after the primary cooking process is finished and then just allow it to reduce uh, in the case of these electric pressure cookers on the, on the saute or sear setting. Okay, and uh, you can get a, a result that's going to be um, very, very close uh, to a stovetop method. Okay, uh, as with uh, any cooking, uh, keep in mind a couple of things. Uh, the first is that as we start to change the original recipe, whether it's an ingredient change or a cooking process change, we should expect some differences in the final product. Okay. Uh, and then number two, uh, there's going to be some practice uh, that's required, I think, uh, in, in most cases in, in order to fine tune the process in your own kitchen. Okay. Based upon your equipment and the particular foods that you're cooking. Okay. It always varies a little bit from, from kitchen to kitchen. All right. Thank you. 
And uh, let's see, the next question comes from Jessica, who says, uh, how do you decide which moist heat method to use? Okay. Um, yeah, this is a, this is a, a, a great question. And, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, with experience, right, you're going to figure out um, how foods react to different uh, cooking methods. You're going to have your own personal preference that comes forward. Um, but generally speaking, when it comes to moist heat cooking methods, we're talking about two general categories, two subcategories. One would be steaming and one would be the submersion methods. Okay, then in, so in the submersion subcategory, uh, we can further divide that into uh, braising and stewing. And uh, I, I would also include simmering, uh, you know, as um, a cooking method that we could talk about um, as, a, as a variation of the moist heat cooking category. Okay, so let's start first with steaming. Um, steaming is uh, generally a pretty quick process. Now we can certainly adjust the heat and therefore the intensity of the steaming process, but generally speaking, it's a relatively quick process. So it's going to be best suited for uh, food items that are relatively small in size. Okay. Whether it's going to be, um, smaller cuts on vegetables or whether they are um, um, uh, uh, bao, you know, like, like small uh, buns. Um, we can certainly make larger things like cakes, um, you know, as well. Um, but still, cakes um, would be a tender product, usually fairly shallow, um, that will cook relatively quickly uh, within this bigger bigger context of, of our discussion here. Okay, so um, that's kind of the, the, uh, the, the filter or the bounds um, of choosing steaming, okay, as a method. Um, now, when it comes to uh, this other category of, of submersion uh, methods, so we've got braising, we have stewing, we've got simmering. Uh, braising we also refer to as a combination cooking process where classically, right, we're going to uh, combine um, some element of dry heat cooking to impart browning and therefore deeper flavor, greater, you know, flavor development, and then also the moist heat uh, simmering process, okay, to tenderize the food. And braising uh, again, classically, there are certainly exceptions that um, people have come up with these days, but uh, classically braising is applied to um, larger food items. Um, stewing is the same sort of an approach. It's a, uh, it's a hybrid or combination method um, employing both dry heat and moist heat. Dry heat for browning, impartation, and flavor development and then the moist heat simmering process uh, to tenderize the relatively tough food item. Um, but stewing involves smaller cuts of, of items, okay? And then simmering is, is a, 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 um, a process that is just singular. In other words, it does not employ uh, a dry heat browning component 
classically. Okay. Now that, uh, you know, the, the term simmering is also used more generally. So in other words, if we're braising an item, you know, uh, you know, we can, in our conversation, okay, in our language of the kitchen, you know, we can say something like, let's brown the item and then top off the pot with our cooking liquid, whether it's um, water or a flavorful liquid like stock. Uh, and then, you know, we'll finish that process by simmering. Let's bring that to a boil, we'll reduce it to a simmer and hold it at that gentle simmer until the item is fork tender well done. Okay, which is typically the benchmark of doneness for uh, a, a braised or a stewed or a simmered item. Okay, um, now how do you choose between those? So on one hand, I, I just explained a little bit between braising and stewing, um, larger items versus smaller items. Again, classically speaking, um, with exceptions. Okay, there seem to be always uh, exceptions in the in the kitchen. Um, uh, if you want to impart color and uh, strive for this extra layer of flavor development, then um, the, the combination cooking methods of abrasing or stewing are called for. Steaming, on the, on the other hand, will not impart any browning. Uh, it, it's just a straight up cook it in a wet environment, uh, and, um, but with some control over the intensity of the steam. Okay, but usually with relatively smaller or tender items. And as I use the word tender, that's where perhaps a larger item like a cake um, can be steamed because it's tender, cooks relatively quickly. Okay. Um, and where we have overlap, okay, between what steaming might do and what um, braising or simmering might do, it becomes your uh, personal preference on what you choose, okay? And so that ultimately is gonna be the beauty um, of cooking, is that as you uh, gain understanding of cooking methods and therefore control over recipes, uh, you get to make the choice on what is gonna be um, convenient, what is gonna be practical for your environment, what's gonna be uh, best for your time constraints, what is preferable for your audience, uh, for example, okay? And uh, so have fun with that. Uh, there's uh, a lot of nuances um, that um, you, know, you get to, to play with and, and learn about uh, through these various processes. And, and uh, as always, have patience. Um, cooking takes uh, a long time uh, to, to refine and to, and to understand, a number of years even. And uh, so you know, have fun with the process. Happy cooking. All right, uh, next up. Uh, we have a question um, from Linda who says, I am looking for clarification on what oils to use when cooking. And uh, Linda references tasks 89 and 90 from the Pro Plant course. Uh, are grapeseed oil and virgin coconut oil the go-to oils, or are there other options such as avocado oil or light olive oil? Aha. So um, uh, the cooking fat or cooking uh, oil question here. Um, let me start out by saying that uh, I like to cook in a, in a low stress environment. And um, um, 
generally speaking, I don't get too caught up in, in some of these, um, uh, uh, these, these uber details um, of, of one oil versus another, okay, necessarily. Um, but let me address this from a couple of angles, okay, from a, uh, from a health perspective, uh, there are certainly different nutrient profiles that are associated with different oils, okay? Uh, more refined oils uh, will have more of their inherent nutrients removed. And so they're really not offering you um, as much as a less refined oil could, okay? Now, uh, you know, having said that, I mean, generally speaking, uh, it's probably a good idea for most people most of the time to limit uh, the amount of cooking oil that's added, okay, that's used, okay, during your day-to-day your -day, uh, kitchen operations, all right? And so in other words, don't rely on oil as a significant source of your nutrients, all right? Uh, I think whole fats are a different, a different story. We're talking about eating avocados or, or olives or or walnuts or almonds, for example, that's a different story. But when we're talking about cooking oils, generally, right, uh, we want to limit the quantities there. Now, um, uh, when we uh, think about uh, nutrient profiles, you know, I, I think um, uh, olive oil, you know, very often sort of uh, comes to the, the the top of the heap, so to speak. It's uh, associated with um, uh, the very helpful, uh, uh, you know, health positive Mediterranean diet. And, um, you know, folks have a lot of success, uh, you know, using that as uh, their one and only oil. Um, but uh, again, I'll let you leave that to your preference. Um, some of those uh, oil choices um, from a now culinary perspective, okay, can uh, be dictated by the flavor profile. So, for example, in some regional cuisines, or maybe uh, based upon your personal preference, uh, coconut oil uh, is preferred or not, or olive oil is preferred or not, okay? Other uh, more refined oils are pretty neutral, okay? Um, you know, my experience, avocado oil uh, is, is neutral. Um, canola oil, right, is neutral. Um, and uh, as you get into these more highly filtered olive oils, like the light olive oil, uh, they tend to be more neutral in flavor or, or much, much lighter in flavor, okay? So that choice becomes a personal one from a culinary perspective. Again, not a health perspective, but a culinary perspective now, okay? Um, the other consideration would be uh, smoke point. And smoke point um, is a sort of a, a, a general um, a category of, of, of um, uh, to talk to talk about or, or a way to look at oils, where visibly you start to see smoke um, coming from that oil as it gets to a certain temperature and exceeds that temperature. Okay, and generally speaking, we want to stay away from the smoke point and cook at something below that. Um, now. There are certainly a lot of uh, nuances to this discussion. Uh, if we were to get into the chemistry of cooking oils and how different oils based upon their constituent properties are more or less resistant to heat. Um, but 
I'll let you pursue that if you're interested through academic papers that are accessible uh, through databases online. Um, uh, but otherwise, as from a culinary perspective, a general way uh, to, to, or thing to keep in mind is just to kind of keep the oil below the smoke point. Um, and and it, um, there's less damage uh, that's done to the oil. And that, that rolls over uh, into the culinary side of things because flavor and aroma can be negatively affected. And then also into the health side of our discussion, um, because um, the positive aspects of the oil can decline and, and negative health aspects can uh, increase uh, if, if that's the way we are handling the oil. Okay. So, uh, you know, ultimately there's, in my opinion, no single go-to oil. This is an individual decision uh, based upon perhaps your family culture uh, or maybe some other uh, beliefs or information that um, you want to base your decision on, okay? And it can certainly be situational, as I mentioned, based upon the regional cuisine uh, that you may be preparing, okay? And uh, so think about all these things and how you might want to proceed uh, with the way that you select your cooking oil. Thank you. All right, and uh, next one. Uh, is from Nancy Z, who says, hi there. Uh, why do soups uh, in stew uh, recipes need tomato paste and crushed tomatoes? Can we just choose one? Thank you. Uh, the, the quick answer uh, for uh, the reason why uh, some of these recipes call for multiple types of tomato products is uh, because each is a little bit different in its flavor profile that's lent. And uh, so the end result is this layering of flavor uh, that's developed through the multiple processes of cooking. Okay. And so these different types of, of uh, tomato product, um, generally speaking, you know, we've got um, tomato paste, we have tomato puree, and then we have uh, fresh tomatoes or, or something just much, much more watery. And uh, these um, have you know, different uh, sort of acidity, sweetness, flavor uh, intensities. And uh, as you start to put these together at different points uh, in the cooking process, um, there is some complexity that is created. And uh, can you just choose one? Sure you can. Um, uh, the, the, the resulting dish, uh, may taste a little different. It may be more or less noticeable depending on what you're making and your individual palate. Um, uh, but basically that's the, that's the rationale. Okay. And, uh, so have fun again with experimenting. Uh, there's nothing wrong, right. With, uh, taking a recipe that calls for multiple types of tomato products and then maybe distilling it to just a single variety in your own kitchen uh, as you get to know that cooking process and you become satisfied with the results. Okay, that is indeed uh, the power, right, that we want to give you um, as you learn to handle cooking methods uh, and then also uh, come to understand how different ingredients function uh, in different preparations as it's exposed to uh, time and temperature. Okay, so, so the manipulation or the control of time and temperature um, are the two 
uh, largest components, right, in most cooking processes. And uh, a lot of fun experimenting, and I, and I hope you will find enjoyment in that too. Thank you. Okay, uh, next up, uh, question uh, says, hello, hello, Janet. Uh, what is the best way to care for an iron skillet? Does it need to be oiled after every use, inside and out, and then put it in the oven to dry? Um, so we've, we've got a lot of absolute sort of uh, uh, terms here, best way and need to be. Um, so um, all of this has some flexibility, okay, kind of just depending on the situation, all right? Um, but let's say that um, generally you're, the second part of your, your question here sort of addresses uh, the ideal way you know, to, to care for unlined cast iron. So not an enameled cast iron pot, but um, just a regular cast iron uh, cookware. Okay, so uh, it should be dry, ideally, and then um, as needed, you know, apply some oil. I mean, uh, you know, one might say best practice is to apply oil every time. Sure, that could be the case. Um, but also, um, you know, take a look at it and uh, see if uh, it might require some oil. And, and like so many things in the kitchen, uh, your experience uh, will inform your process as time goes on. Okay. Uh, you know, one thing is the, the cleaning process itself. And, uh, you know, probably many of us, uh, have, have heard uh, the, the horror story, uh, whether it's a modern one or one dating from a couple of generations back, uh, where somebody uh, uh, was, was helping out and saw this blackened skillet and uh, took the, the scrubby and uh, stripped it clean, um, you know, only to be faced with uh, this uh, look of horror um, you know, by the, the main cook of the house, um, who had spent so much time um, building up that uh, wonderful layer uh, on the cast iron skillet. Um, so uh, there is some gentleness uh, that is preferable, right, when cooking cast iron. And so, for example, um, especially when it, we're dealing with uh, dry heat cooking methods, for example, uh, saute, uh, it's fairly common, you know, for uh, little bits of food and, and sauce uh, to, to dry up and adhere to the surface of that skillet. Uh, you know, in which case, um, after the cooking, you know, after the food is removed from that pan, it's good to put just a little bit of water in the pan just to cover that, that uh, surface of stuck on stuff and just let it sit. Uh, while you move on with your cooking process and, and your meal, perhaps, uh, and only to come back to that skillet later on uh, when you'll find that the adhered product has softened uh, from that warm or even hot water uh, that's been sitting in that pan for some time. And at that point, the pan is much easier to clean uh, without the need for aggressive scrubbing. And that's going to help you preserve and even build up um, that beautiful layer um, uh, on the cast iron skillet. Okay. And so I think that part of the bigger picture is important to keep in mind as well. Um, but yeah, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, think about um, uh, the, the oiling process. And um, if you see any rust spots or patches appear, and a lot of times it's not uh, the inside, but the sides or the bottom 
uh, which might be um, exposed to direct heat, um, you know, especially uh, if, it's, if it's a gas range that you're using or an open flame, let's say. So uh, in, in which cases it's nice to uh, um, uh, exercise some maintenance uh, with a, a light rub of oil. Um, you can just put it back over the fire and let that sort of burn on or you know burn off or however you want to look at that. Um, it doesn't have to be in the oven necessarily to dry. You can also dry it with a towel uh, to get uh, you know most of the moisture out and then otherwise let it sit and air dry. Okay. And again, some of this may depend on uh, the the ambient uh, sort of conditions in your area. Okay. Uh, if you if you're in a very dry place, you know, like um, you know Colorado or Arizona, um, probably moisture on the surface will dry up very quickly. Uh, but if you're in a more humid place, then uh, a towel will uh, help that process along. Okay, I hope that's helpful for you, Janet. Thank you. All right, uh, next up uh, from Elizabeth. Uh, when adding whole wheat flour to a bread dough, what do I need to change to get it to rise properly? Okay. Um, interesting. So we've got um, a, a situation here um, where we're talking about altering a baking recipe or formula. Okay, very often uh, when we talk about baked goods, we use the word formula instead of recipe uh, because a formula implies that the, the, the original sort of starting point or let's say recipe has been tested multiple times uh, and uh, those ingredient quantities um, uh, in conjunction with uh, equipment and methods applied are sort of locked in. Um, not in, not 100%, there's always gonna be some room for adjustment, but you know, we, uh, we, we fine tune uh, the ingredient quantities uh, you know, based upon those ingredient types, so the specifications of those ingredients that we're using. And then we call that a formula. At that point, we can just use that over and over in our bake shop, in our kitchen. Uh, and then we have to understand that as we take that formula to a different kitchen, to a different bakery, a different restaurant, a different house, a different region in the world, that some adjustments will be necessary based upon the specifications of the ingredients available to us or the, uh, the climate, you know, humidity level, um, altitude, and these other factors, okay? Now, in the case of um, uh, changing a refined flour, you know, a white flour to whole wheat flour, so we're, we're changing the specification of an ingredient, in this case, the major ingredient uh, in bread dough, all right? The, the biggest thing to keep in mind uh, when using whole wheat is that it's got everything in it, right? It's got the, especially the bran uh, is what I'm getting at. <clears throat> bran is thirsty and it requires noticeably more water than its white flour or, or refined flour counterpart, okay? And so if you're <clears throat> using uh, whole wheat flour and uh, without adjusting the water, then the, the dough, right, that you've mixed and that you've kneaded is gonna be very tight due to the relatively low water content at this point. And so 
the 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 rising process becomes more difficult for um, the yeast, and so what you need to do is increase the water. Okay, and um, you know it depends on just how much of this the the flour you're using. All right, so uh, just as an example, if um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come up with just a, a broad example. Here's some place for you to start your experimentation process. Okay, but if you're using, let's say, um, three uh, cups of total flour, and maybe 50% of that uh, was changed to whole wheat flour, you may need to increase the, the liquid by about a quarter cup. Okay, just as a starting point. Okay. Uh, my recommendation is to take notes and be, be prepared to do uh, multiple tests in order to uh, uh, you know, fine tune uh, this recipe uh, or this formula to fit your environment, okay, and this, and this change that you're making, okay? But that's what's going on. Uh, your dough doesn't have enough moisture. Thank you. All right. And next up uh, from Char. Uh, nice to see you. Thank you very much. Uh, look for recommendations for the most nutrient-dense rice for making sushi. Aha. Uh -huh. So, um, well, uh, let me start by saying that uh, culturally speaking, right, from, from a Japanese perspective, uh, sushi is based on white rice. Um, white rice, uh, like rice in general, is mostly a source of carbohydrates. In the case of white rice, there's, I mean, there's not a significant amount of other stuff I mean, uh, uh, that comes along with that. Certainly there are some um, smaller amounts of, um, of, of nutrients, but um, the, 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 uh, the, the aesthetic of the eating experience uh, becomes primary with sushi. And um, so therefore, um, uh, you know, arguably the, the nutritional profile uh, of the rice that's chosen is sacrificed, okay, for the, the aesthetic of the eating experience. All right, which then brings us to brown rice. Okay, so if, if we want to talk about a couple of broad categories of rice, one is going to be polished rice or milled rice or white rice, the resulting white rice, or brown rice, uh, which has the bran layer um, and uh, um, germ and endosperm uh, intact. Usually there, there are different types in the middle here on this spectrum of rice, but let's just talk about simply these two, two categories here. Um, brown rice is going to be by far... Uh, you know, the more nutrient dense choice. And, um, you know, I think in this, uh, in this day and age uh, to make sushi out of brown rice is quite acceptable. It's quite fine. Um, understand, you know, as um, uh, I, I mentioned earlier in the program today that when we make an ingredient change, that we should expect a change in the resulting product. And so in this case, if we we're going to shift from the traditional white rice, Japanese style rice, to a Japanese style brown rice, um, that the results are going to be uh, more brown rice-esque, uh, meaning it's going to be chewer, chewier and, and you know, firmer as a result of the bran layer. Um, but the nutrient profile is going to be much uh, more favorable 
right, you know, than, than the white rice. And so we've got um, the bran uh, itself, uh, a source of um, uh, significant, you know, meaningful um, fiber in the diet. And uh, fiber is one of my favorite F words. Uh, it is so important. Um, and, uh, you know, helping, uh, I mean, you know, we, we talk about these, these, sometimes these very simple sort of, um, uh, correlations like it, 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 um, um, you know, tempers blood sugar, you know, this sort of thing, which it does, but fiber does so much more in, in terms of our uh, internal goodness. Um, and then there are other, uh, phytonutrients, you know, micronutrients that come along with brown rice, uh, a, a set of, of uh, minerals and, and vitamins are associated with the uh, uh, less processed or unprocessed rice at that stage. And uh, so, uh, yeah, but brown rice is the way to go um, as a quick answer. Now, let me shift back to white rice for a moment, okay? We can bolster the nutrient profile of white rice through the addition of other grains. And I'll, I'll give you a, a couple of examples, okay? So one is quinoa. Uh, and it doesn't matter what color you use, uh, but, but quinoa cooks up um, very nicely together with rice. And uh, that addition can uh, bolster the nutrient profile of the resulting rice. And you can still cook it to uh, maintain some nice texture um, as far as that, that uh, eating aesthetic is concerned, okay? Um, millet. Uh, is another grain that comes to mind uh, that can be combined with uh, rice uh, to add some interest, some, some texture interest uh, at a subtle level, as well as some flavor interest, and certainly uh, a more interesting nutrient profile. Okay, now within this bigger context of rice in Japan, I'd like to add that, you know, generally speaking, we associate white rice with Japanese food culture. Um, but in Japan, there's a, a long history of combining other grains and even legumes with rice uh, to, uh, to, to bolster its, um, its interest uh, and its nutritional profile. And uh, you know, millet is one example. Uh, buckwheat, um, well, buckwheat comes up. Buckwheat, yeah, maybe not the best example with rice, but buckwheat is another grain or pseudo grain that has a long history in, in uh, Japanese cuisine. Um, and then we have beans that are added as well uh, in, in some preparations. But um, uh, there is a history of that, I guess is what I'm saying in Japan. Uh, quinoa is a more modern sort of uh, uh, grain in the context of, of um uh, let's say Japanese, you know, the, the intersection of Japanese cooking and the combination of quinoa with Japanese rice is one that I see more in, say, the United States, um, not something that I've seen in, in Japan. Okay, not that it doesn't exist today, but it's going to be a more modern sort of iteration of, of uh, rice cookery. But that's certainly a way to up the nutrient profile. I hope that helps. Thank you very much, Char. Okay, and then Cynthia is asking, do you have a recipe for the spices for uh, chai tea? Okay, so for chai, um, 
uh, I don't have a recipe per se. I think you can certainly look online for many, many examples of recipes, depending on a person's preference or maybe some regional example, uh, which is really how these spices come together. Okay. And for a lot of people, a lot of households, uh, the spice blend will also change uh, from season to season, uh, depending on uh, just how you want those spices to affect your body. Um, in other words, now I'm talking about a medicinal uh, perspective uh, on the spices and chai uh, as, a, as, a, as a food substance, as a beverage, okay? And I would be talking about this from an Ayurvedic perspective, okay? So, uh, you know, for example, in the cooler months, you might increase the, the warming or heating spices, like uh, black pepper or cloves or ginger. Uh, and in the warmer months, you might decrease those items, um, you know, while using uh, maybe more uh, cardamom and cinnamon uh, or, or turmeric, uh, you know, in your chai. And, um, but uh, some, some possibilities um, and, and some common ingredients that you see in chai, you know, would include uh, black pepper, uh, it includes ginger, there's cinnamon, there's cardamom, there's cloves, okay, as a starting point. Um, I mentioned turmeric a second ago, and that's something that um, you see sometimes. Uh, it's certainly something that I like to use uh, because of its wonderful health effects, okay, and I try to put that in everything you eat, actually. But um, uh, the other part of this is to uh, approach this through some spirit of experimentation, um, but as always with so much, uh, so many cooking um, uh, experiences, it's nice to start with somebody's recipe just so you have a baseline. And then from there, feel empowered to make uh, adjustments, okay? And uh, that's the best way uh, for you to learn about uh, the individual spice profiles and uh, what they impart in the chai. Uh, or to the chai, and uh, how, you know, increasing black peppercorns by just three peppercorns can make a difference, you know, in that uh, small batch of chai that you might make. And you're only going to learn that by experimenting, okay? Um, you're going to understand the difference between using dried uh, ginger powder and freshly grated ginger, okay? You're going to learn the effects of uh, freshly grated ginger on cow's milk or or other other milks as well. Um, if you you know depending on on what avenue you take here, um, in other words, uh, fresh ginger can cause curdling of milk, and therefore it's it's uh, best to put ginger in early uh, and let it simmer. Draw it draws out the spices. It neutralizes the enzymes that would uh, curdle milk. Uh, then we add the milk uh, you know, to, to finish. And then as far as uh, sweeteners are concerned, um, probably more times than not, right? Chai has a sweetener of some sort. That's totally up to you, okay? If you travel to, to India uh, and, and other points in South Asia, um, you know, where uh, chai is, is part of the daily custom, um, uh, refined sugar, you know, white sugar, is uh, what I usually see in places in uh, India and Nepal, for example. Um, but feel free to use other types of sweeteners, okay? 
Um, I have a, a supply of whole leaf stevia, dried stevia leaves here, um, which imparts a different type of, of uh, sweetness profile. Um, if you want to use a, a less uh, processed uh, sugar, uh, you know, such as jaggery uh, or maybe a, a, a more common brown sugar, uh, then, then give that a try and see how you like the results. Okay. Uh, once you, again, have some experience under your belt, uh, you can call the process yours and uh, you get to sort of fine tune that uh, to best suit your palate and then also uh, the audience for whom you're preparing the chai. All right, keeping in mind that it is completely fine uh, to alter the chai based on the season, for example, throughout the year, okay? And then uh, uh, you'll be making chai wherever you go. Uh, one thing that I do is uh, when, when, you know, when, when we're camping in the summertime, um, I always bring a big kettle all the ingredients for chai, you know, fresh ginger and peppercorns and cinnamon sticks and all that. I travel with a mortar and pestle. In this case, I'm not backpacking, right? I'm, we're in the car and uh, I'm grinding stuff by hand and uh, we're simmering right there. And the pot is big enough to share with whoever's walking by. And uh, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, so, you know, you will become a chai lover and um, uh, you will feel confident uh, to, to do it the way that you like it and, and in a way that comes out balanced and hopefully in a way that makes sense, uh, again, for the seasons from, from an Ayurvedic or medicinal standpoint, right, uh, for your body. All right. Thank you. Okie doke. Uh, next up, uh, can you tell me more about miso and seaweed? I'm interested in attempting to buy some and start using it. Holy cow, a couple of big uh, topic areas here. Um, I'm going to start by answering this question, uh, Cynthia, by saying, go out and buy some, buy some different types of things and start using it. Um, in the case of the miso, open them, open the containers, the bags, you know, the, 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 the plastic containers and just taste them. Side by side is the best way to understand how uh, ingredients taste. And uh, we, we refer to this sort of um, a taste comparison as a cutting. Uh, that's a, a, a restaurant industry term, a cutting, where we have multiple samples of, of a like item and we line them up side by side and then we'll taste them and then we'll start doing things with them, right? We'll start cooking with them and, and see how, uh, how, they, how they fare right, when applied uh, to, uh, uh, against time and, and temperature. And uh, so, um, you know, with, with miso, I mean, generally speaking, um, uh, there, there are many types of miso in the world, well, in, in Japan anyway. But, uh, you know, here in the U.S., uh, broadly speaking, you'll find white miso, you'll find red miso, this darker brown colored miso. There's others in, in between. But uh, white miso tends to have a sweeter profile. Uh, and, and an overall lighter flavor intensity. Red miso is a more robust, salty profile. Um, you can uh, choose uh, between varieties based upon the season. Um, you know, maybe you want a more robust, sort of a hearty uh, flavor profile imparted in the cooler months, kind of like braising. 
uh, is associated with um, cook cooking methods uh, for the cooler months, uh, whereas a, a lighter miso soup might be more appropriate for light, um, hot weather soups. But again, totally up to you, okay? Um, some misos are have been strained and are very smooth in consistency. Uh, others have um, koji or, or elements of, of the, uh, the base rice uh, or soybeans are still in uh, the, the paste. Um, some uh, miso paste um, will have dashi incorporated into it. So dashi is the Japanese stock which is traditionally made separately, right, as the flavorful liquid that goes into making miso soup anyway. Um, so that's going to be a convenience product. Um, give it a try. See if you like it. Um, I'm a, I enjoy the process of making dashi and doing this and that. Um, and uh, so I buy miso that's plain miso without the addition of dashi, but that's totally up to you, okay? Um, when it comes to seaweed, there are many, many different kinds, okay? There's um, a nori or laver, which usually comes in sheets. Uh, that's commonly associated with rolled sushi, okay? Uh, but you can also just tear it or cut it into smaller pieces and use it to informally uh, pick up rice or other food items. You um, like at that point it becomes a, kind of a a small wrap that you can just pop in your mouth. And um, you know we see that in Japan as well. So I'm not just making that up uh, for the U.S. audience or folks outside of Japan. Okay, um, you know you've got kombu, uh, you know which can be a couple meters long or more, and um, Generally speaking, kombu uh, is associated with making uh, a one category of dashi, right, or the stock that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago. And um, you can eat the, the kombu as well after you finish making the stock, you know, simmering um, the, the kombu. Uh, consider just slicing it up into, into thin pieces, an eighth of an inch or a quarter inch thick, and then put that into your soup. Um, add it into a different uh, stew that you're making or a casserole or something else. Uh, other things are made from that as well. Um, but uh, it's a great food item, so you don't have to discard it as many recipes suggest, okay, after making stock or after making dashi, okay? Um, I mean, there's hijiki, which are these uh, short sort of pine needle-shaped um, a type of, of seaweed that's uh, then soaked and then um, combined with tofu dishes or vegetable dishes or put into soups. Um, so they create a, a certain visual effect, a certain um, mouthfeel or aesthetic. They have a certain flavor associated with them. And there's so many, many, many more varieties of, uh, of seaweed, but uh, you got to give it a try. Okay. And if you can... Um, uh, you know, do some side-by-side -side testing. Uh, that's really going to push your understanding down the path very, very quickly. Okay, so I hope you'll give that a try. Thank you. All right. Next up from Valentina. Uh, hello. Uh, question about rolling pins. If you can own only one, which type would you go for? Uh, 
Wow. I have, you know, I've never thought about that, Valentina. I've, you know, you've got, I don't know, multiple rolling pins, <laughs> always within reach. This is a difficult question. I mean, there, you know, there's marble and well, I think probably stainless steel. And we've got, you know, these tapered, you know, French rolling pins and larger diameter ball bearing, uh, big rolling pins um, in, in uh, Indian uh, cookery to, to make flatbread or chapati. You've got a, a tapered rolling pin again. You've got a short rolling pin to make uh, pot sticker wrappers, jiaozi or gyoza wrappers. Um, I've even taken um, a, a closet uh, a rod. Uh, I, sh I shouldn't say I, I took a closet rod, but I went to the hardware store and I bought a, an oak um closet rod okay hanger rod and i cut it into different lengths uh to make hardwood rolling pins <clears throat> and then i you know I, I think i oiled them with mineral oil or something like that and um you know, even gave a couple of them away but you can then customize the lengths depending on the size of your toolkit that you might take camping with you or traveling for catering or the size of your drawer or whatever it is that you're making. Um, so that's another thing to consider. Okay. Um, so, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, some of these rolling pins, um, you know, they're, they're, they're culturally uh, um, in a way prescribed or, or dictated, you know, like if you're making, uh, uh, you know, chapati, you know, the, the, the flatbread in the Indian kitchen. Um, there's a kind of a certain technique that's, that's commonly used in the kitchen with the, the hands open and, and a thinner diameter tapering uh, rolling pin um, that, that's used. And it works very well when you get used to that technique. Um, if you're um, rolling out larger sheets of, of um, uh, puff pastry or, or blitz dough or something, and um, you got some a, a big table to work across, maybe you want a larger diameter uh, rolling pin, nice uh, ball bearings, big handles so that in uh, large diameter so your knuckles don't hit the dough, okay, um, as you're moving back and forth. Um, uh, you know, something with um, a little bit of weight is nice, right, to help do the work for you. So it's not you just, you know, pushing down on the dough. You know, that's where these larger um, rolling pins or, or a marble rolling pin can come in handy, okay? Um, so this is still a difficult question. Uh, I didn't come up with an answer for you, but I hope that um, those, uh, those thoughts that I just shared um, will help you, you know, choose a rolling pin or five. All right. Thank you. Okay. We've got a question from uh, Bianca who says, I am taking the Ruby baking course. And uh, as a mixed batter, uh, I wonder uh, how should a well mixed batter look like? How would it look like over mixed or under mixed? Okay. Uh, well, this is uh, another great uh, question associated with the bake shop. Um, so uh, let me first say that depending on what you're making, okay, there are different types of batters and the benchmarks vary, 
Okay, so there's not uh, a single answer that I can give you. Okay, but um, I will also say that uh, you know when making, um, let's say, cakes, right? The number one issue, the most common problem, is over mixing. Okay, and uh, the troubleshooting right comes out in the finished product. All right, so. Uh, if we're working with a high fat product, such as a pound cake, uh, over mixing will result in tunneling or these long holes or tunnels, um, that form inside the cake. And we notice that when we cut it open and, and we, you know, look at the cross section of the finished product, uh, in the case of a lower fat cake, like a sponge cake, um, it will look like, um, uh, a, a depressed cake, one that didn't rise sufficiently. Okay. And so that's going to be some initial troubleshooting for overmixing. Okay. Now, if we back that process up um, to get us to um, the, the mixing steps, okay, the, the couple of steps of, of mixing, uh, you know, we've got the initial, um, you know, usually in conventional baking, there's going to be eggs and, you know, things in that first wet stage that you're, uh, that you're blending. Um, and there's going to be commonly air that's incorporated, okay, to, to bring some, some loft, okay, to that mixture. And then the flour is added to that. Now, the weight of the flour will always uh, draw down or uh, sort of, you know, compress uh, that batter. Okay, but you want to you want to pay attention to how much loft is being created in this initial um, uh, mixing step of the wet ingredients, and then what it looks like as you're incorporating the flour. And and the the goal is to just incorporate the flour uh, so that it's it's evenly incorporated, okay? And then, generally speaking, you're good to go. If we keep on mixing, uh, again, which is the, the most common problem, then we see uh, deflation uh, and gluten development uh, in the flour. Okay, and, and um, now on the other hand, if, if it's undermixed, uh, we can see lumps. Uh, I'm talking about the cakes right now. Uh, you, you know, we'll see lumps. We might see uh, streaks or spots of, of dry flour. Those would be evidence of an undermixed uh, batter. Okay, um, so at this point, it's going to be repetition that will inform you as to whether the batter is um, uh, mixed um, well. So not under or not overmixed. okay? So these are just a couple of general sort of tips to keep in mind, but really repetition. Your experience is very, very important uh, in the bake shop to better understand what the uh, different um, steps of procedures and cooking method or mixing methods do, uh, as well as how specific ingredients and combinations of ingredients act and react 
in that environment. Okay, so I'm gonna shift gears here, right? Remember the, the first thing I said was, it depends on the type of batter that you're making, okay? There are other batters, you know, let's say um, a pancake batter, okay? That uh, can be mixed relatively lightly such that we do see some lumps in the mixture, okay? And it, it's okay. Uh, as it cooks, it, it turns out okay. Um, you know, in the case of uh, some uh, batters for deep frying, such as for tempura, it's even desirable to leave some evidence of, of dried you know, flour, um, uh, little bumps or, 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 or spots. Uh, and then once it goes through that frying technique, it all sort of turns out well. Um, so it ultimately depends on what kind of a batter you're using, what you're making, okay? So keep all of that in mind. And um, the biggest thing is to be engaged uh, with that process and uh, correlate that to the finished product uh, that you've created. And then try to backtrack to just what it is that you saw, what it sounded like, you know, use your full um, sort of sensory engagement, um, you know, in the baking process. Okay, thank you. Uh, and then next up, uh, we got a question from Carlene who says, I'm planning to make a soup using lupini beans. Should I remove the skin from the beans before I add them? Uh, this is going to be uh, really 100% a, a personal uh, decision. Uh, depending on on your preferred aesthetic, okay, whether it's uh, mouthfeel uh, or the the visual uh, aesthetic that you prefer. Um, I mean, generally speaking, there's nothing wrong that I can think of uh, of leaving skins, bean skins, in uh, a food item, whether it's garbanzo beans or lima beans or something else. Uh, you know, for most people, most of the time. Um, there may be exceptions uh, in the way that some people react uh, to uh, bean skins, but by and large, it's going to be totally up to you. I recommend trying it both ways. Leave it in, remove it, compare the results, and uh, see what you prefer. And, uh, you know, give it some uh, analytical thought uh, and come up with reasons why you like it a certain way or why you don't like it a certain way. Okay, rather, rather than just saying, eh, you know, just because. Um, I think it's good to push ourselves to a deeper understanding of our relationship with food. It only makes our cooking better. Okay, so give that a try. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up from Craig, uh, who writes, I had wrist surgery, so I cannot do the cutting for very long. Are there knives that are sharper than others? Currently, I have hinkles, but with the blade so wide and heavy becomes an issue. Aha. Uh, yeah, great question. Um, there definitely are, um, you know, knives that have a heavier construction and knives that have a lighter construction. And, um, you know, part of that is based upon the length of the blade. And part of that is also based on the thickness of the blade. Okay. Um, generally speaking, uh, European style chef's knives. And so, you know, Hinkle's would be uh, an example uh, of a brand uh, that comes to mind. Uh, you know, Vustoff is another one. 
where the chef's knife is characterized by pretty heavy construction. And um, <clears throat> on, the, on the other hand, um, there are knives, uh, I'm, I'm generalizing here, but, but in the Japanese tradition, that tend to be thinner uh, in construction. Um, and uh, they are lighter in weight. You can also choose knives, of course, that are shorter in length. Um, but these thinner blades uh, will, you know, slice through things pretty easily. And, and I'm talking um, things that are of light to medium density. Okay, that's, that's important to keep in mind because there is some specificity of the type of knife you might choose based upon what it is you want to cut. In other words, if you have a, a knife that's too delicate and you try to cut things that are pretty hard, like, you know, an acorn squash, you run the risk of chipping the knife, uh, you know, in which case, you know, maybe a heavier Hinkle's knife might be a better choice. Okay. But yes, um, there are definitely um, some knives out there uh, that could make uh, the cutting task for you a little bit easier. All right. Uh, thank you. All right. Uh, next up from Jeff, uh, who says, I'll be cooking duck over the holidays for guests. What are some good whole food plant-based side dishes to accompany duck? Um, you know, I, you know, I'll tell you, I, I'm a, a fan uh, really of anything. Um, which doesn't help you, I understand. But, you know, let's start with winter squash. You know, I, I just mentioned a minute ago, uh, acorn squash. And so that's a place to start. Um, butternut squash, Hubbard squash, um, the Japanese kabocha type of squash. Um, there are also um, uh, sweet potatoes of various sorts. Uh, I'm a big fan of the uh, purple Japanese style sweet potato, purple skin or, or deep red, kind of a, uh, like magenta. Well, let's say deep red colored skin with a white flesh. Uh, I also love purple sweet potatoes. Those, um, it, it, it's got a deep earthy flavor. Depending on the variety you choose, the, the sweetness level can vary from really like candy sweet to much more earthy uh, in profile. Um, it's got all kinds of nutrients, if you're just wondering about that. Those anthocyanins that, you know, we associate with beets and these other purple foods are just compressed, it seems, in uh, these purple varieties of, of sweet potatoes. So those are a, a great choice. Um, you know, other potatoes, of course, abound. Um, and then other root vegetables. Uh, there are rutabagas. There are parsnips. Um, you know, they're... Um, uh, again, you know, other uh, with celery ac or celery root uh, is another choice. Um, so root vegetables in general, um, you know, can be a nice um, seasonally appropriate uh, product that also goes nicely with um, duck. Uh, you can you can puree these items. You can blend them, you know, with multiple items together. Uh, you can cut them in different shapes and sizes depending on the on the uh, plate presentation that you might design or, you know, have in mind. Um, you can, of course, flavor them uh, in different directions with herbs, with spices. You can perfume them heavily or lightly or even not at all. Uh, many of these items I just mentioned, like celeriac, 
um, or a purple sweet potato have so much personality on their own that you may not need to add anything to them, um, save uh, a pinch of salt and pepper, e even, you know, uh, or even, uh, you know, uh, bypassing those things could be fine. Um, you know, there's always things like um, green beans, there's uh, Brussels sprouts, um, you know, those are all, uh, you know, commonly available things that um, I have cooked with duck in the past um, that I enjoy. Um, if, you're, if you want to give Brussels sprouts a try, uh, my recommendation is to really push the browning. Um, so use a really high heat. If you're not oil averse, lightly, lightly oil. Uh, the Brussels sprouts and, and develop some browning all around. On your initial uh, roasting, put the cut sides down on the sheet pan because that full contact is going to develop some nice color. Okay. And then you can turn them over and, and um, you know, continue the cooking process. But you develop this deep color and a little bit of a crunchiness on those outer leaves. And it, uh, it adds a, a multiple dimensions at that point to uh, the eating experience. Okay. Um, and so that's a place to start. Um, you can always, uh, another kind of fun thing to do, uh, and this is a, a David Chang from New York City um, approach to Brussels sprouts, but buy some kimchi, put it in your blender. Uh, so you got a kimchi puree, and then lightly toss your deeply roasted Brussels sprouts in the kimchi puree and serve that. It just adds another little um, sweet, sour, hot, sort of a sassy sauce uh, at that point. Okay. Um, maybe you're going to dress up some roasted vegetables, a medley of roasted vegetables. Maybe you'll garnish that with uh, some, some pomegranate seeds, you know, some whole fresh pomegranate seeds uh, for some color, uh, as well as a fistful or two or three of fresh herbs. Um, you know, mint leaves and, and uh, thyme and, and oregano, um, uh, maybe a bit of uh, rosemary. All these things go very nicely um, with roasted vegetables uh, as well. So, uh, you know, give these things a try. Um, so long as they suit your palate, I, I don't think you can go wrong. All right. Thank you. All right. Another question from Oblanca. I think maybe I said Bianca earlier. I, I apologize. Uh, Blanca. Uh, when cooking pasta, can I add dry pasta to cook with other ingredients together, uh, say in a casserole, or uh, is it recommended to be cooked and drained separately? Uh, this is a great question. Uh, you can go either way. Uh, again, one of the beauties of cooking is that um, uh, you can learn to do things multiple ways, um, just depending. Uh, on your situation. It could be time constraints. It could be uh, space constraints. Um, it could be, uh, uh, you know, adherence to a, um, a, a regionally specific cooking method. Uh, there could be, you know, various, you know, reasons that influence your choice here. But let me say a, a couple of specific things. That is, um, if you cook pasta separately, okay, for whatever you're doing, whether it's a soup, right, or a pasta dish or a casserole or whatever. If you cook the pasta separately, you're going to have the most control 
over the texture, over the degree of doneness of the pasta. Okay. And then, um, you know, if you can look ahead and think about, uh, you know, how long the pasta is going to sit with the other components of this dish and how wet it might get and how much it might soak in the, you know, the, the watery component, the, the juices, the, the sauces, then you can adjust the degree of doneness of the pasta in that initial step. Okay, we talk about cooking pasta al dente, uh, but you can make it even uh, harder, right, or less done if you know it's going to sit together with something um, during the meal or just prior to going to the table, okay? So this is what I mean by you have more control over the, over the uh, textural quality of the pasta. Now, on the other hand, in the name of convenience, perhaps, um, you can certainly incorporate pasta into a dish to make it a one-pot meal, such as a casserole. You just need to adjust the water, right, or the, the liquid content appropriately so that everything is going to be cooked to the degree that is appropriate, okay? So you don't have underdone pasta. One of the worst things in the world, I'm sure, okay? Um, and that's going to take some practice on your part. Always take notes while you're cooking. Um, that's my recommendation for everybody. I live by those rules. I've got a notebook, pen, uh, within about two or three steps in the kitchen. And I'm always taking notes for the, uh, these sorts of things. Okay. Um, but you can do it either way. Uh, just depends. Thank you. And, uh, from Dr. KK who says, good afternoon, Chef Eric. Thank you for another interesting and informative session. Thank you very much, Dr. KK. And, uh, thank you all. Uh, for joining me today uh, for my office hours. Um, I appreciate uh, all of your participation and um, I wish you happy cooking uh, until we meet again. All right, thank you very much. Bye-bye.